0: Well, this morning, as we continue our series in Colossians, let's talk about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. I am convinced, beloved, and I am not the only one, that there is, perhaps in all the Scripture, no more Christ-exalting, Christ-glorifying, Christ-revealing passage of Scripture than is our text this morning. No words in Scripture perhaps boast more of his majesty and his glory, of his wonder and his splendor, of his grand design and deity, of all that he is and all that he has done, then does our text this morning. And so as we meditate upon these words, let Christ be exalted in your mind. See how Christ is exalted in the heavens. May he be exalted in every heart this morning. Let's talk about Jesus. One of the interesting things in talking about Jesus that you discover that, in our, that our Lord in his teaching ministry, he asked a lot of questions. Sometimes we kind of just go over that fact as we always, we are people who are seeking answers. But interestingly enough, Jesus asked more questions than he gave direct answers. He who knew all things, and he who is the answer to all of life's most important questions, he asked the most questions. Now, beloved, most people ask questions to learn. That's what we do typically, to to discover the unknown, to uncover the truth that we don't know. This is true for little kids. That's why they tell us that the average four-year-old asks 437 questions a day. If you've ever been around a three- or four- or five-year-old, you know that is true. That's probably on the low end. (laughs) But Jesus, beloved, was no four-year-old. He didn't ask questions to discover truth. He didn't ask questions to learn. He didn't ask questions to discover, but rather Jesus asked questions to uncover His questions were heart-piercing. His questions reveal the thoughts and the intents of human hearts. And and so we are reminded of some of those most piercing questions that Jesus asked. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse 3, he asked his disciples, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? many times as he asked you that question he asks me that question almost on a daily basis in John chapter 20 verse 15 when Mary is at the tomb and she's weeping because our Lord is not there. He is risen and Jesus says, Why are you weeping? And who are you looking for? What a question. <laughs> who are you looking for? In John chapter 21 and verse 16, as he is gathered there with Peter and John, And right before his ascension, he looks at Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? How would you answer that question if the Lord was to present it to you this morning? Because that's the question that he asks over and over again every day. Do you love me? According to a book that I'm reading, it's called Jesus is the Question, the author suggests, and he did the counting so I wouldn't have to, thankfully, that Jesus asks 307 questions as recorded in the scriptures. 307 questions. And yet I would suggest to you this morning that the preeminent question, the prime question that Jesus asks, is a question that he asks of his disciples. Of all the questions that Jesus asks, perhaps this is the pinnacle of questions. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, when he looked at his disciples and says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Beloved, this, I believe, is the ultimate question. Basically, the question is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the question of all questions. This is the question that determines destinies, beloved. This is the question that opens the gates of heaven. This is the question that closes the gates of hell. Who is Jesus? And this is no little question, beloved. And therefore, since it is such a prominent and preeminent question, we need to understand that this is the question that the Bible is answering over and over and over and over again. When you're reading the Bible, the Bible is answering this question for you, whether you understand it or realize it or not. It is communicating to you over and over again who Jesus is and why that matters. Why again in his epistle, Paul takes up the charge to remind the Colossians. He does it in all of his epistles. He reminds people who Jesus is. Because that's the question that should be on everybody's mind. That is the preeminent question. So after he prays for the Colossians, as we saw last week, that they should be taking root and bearing fruit, because they have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, because he has forgiven all of their sins, Paul now says, this is the one who has delivered you. This is the one who has redeemed you. This is the one who has forgiven all your sins. And he is Jesus. Do you really know who he is? Do you really know who he is? He is the eternal son of God. He is God revealed in the flesh. See how he begins verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is, beloved. He is the image of the invisible god the bible tells us over and over again you understand the bible says over and over again that god is a spirit and cannot be seen first timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 speaking of speaking of god it says who alone is Im- who alone has immortality who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. No one has ever seen or can see. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12, it puts it plainly, the Bible says, no one has ever seen God. And then came Jesus. And then came Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You wrap your mind around that, beloved. Someone said that when Jesus came, God got real. Well, beloved... Jesus did not make God real. God had already been real. Jesus is God revealed. The invisible God has revealed himself in Christ Jesus, his son. The Bible tells us over and over again, this is Jesus. And when he was born... The prophecy in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 is that his name would be called what? Emmanuel, which being translated means what? God with us. This is Christ Jesus upon the earth. He is God with us. In Matthew chapter and John chapter 14, when his disciples come to him and, and, and the disciples say, Show us the Father. We want to see God. Show us him. We heard that he passed by Moses, and Moses got a glimpse of him. We heard David say, if I can just see God, I would be satisfied. Well, Jesus, here you are. Show us God. What does Jesus say? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. For he is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1 and verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. All that there is to know about God, you see and hear and learn in Christ. Jesus is not just God in high definition. Jesus is like that TV that Josh just bought. That super ultra definition 4K. Anybody got one of those? Amen. Tell on yourself. Costs about as much as a car. Jesus was the presence of God on earth. He, beloved, is the invisible God. Visible. The invisible God visible. And as such, as God revealed upon the earth, he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse, and you ever get in a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, they will indeed, no doubt, you start talking about the nature of Jesus and who Jesus is, because again, that is the ultimate question. And if you begin to have that conversation with Jehovah's Witness, no doubt, they will come to this verse and suggest to you that Jesus is not God, because this verse here suggests that Jesus is the first one of all God's creation. And they teach, therefore, that he is the preeminent creation. He is the preeminent angel, the first and the best of God's creation work. But well, the idea here and in the context, beloved, is clear that the The firstborn here is not the firstborn of all those created, but Jesus as the firstborn, the son of God, over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Because you do understand that in the context of the entirety of scriptures, the firstborn relates to the inheritance, does it not? In fact, this is what is going on throughout the Old Testament as siblings and sibling rivalries are happening and kingdoms are rising and kingdoms are falling. The discussion over and over again is who is the firstborn and who has right to the inheritance? Well, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22 that Israel was God's firstborn. God told Moses, you go tell Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, Israel is my firstborn son, and you let him go. And as the firstborn son of God, what was Israel to inherit? They were to inherit the land and all the promises of God because they were his firstborn. The Bible also tells us that David was God's firstborn. In Psalm 89 and verse 27, the word of God says, and I will make him, speaking of David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of, of the earth. And David ruled over Israel at, at its great height and, and power, and even today is regarded as the greatest of all the kings of Israel, the Firstborn of God. Christ, beloved, comes and is revealed as the firstborn over all creation and, and therefore belongs to him all the inheritance. Israel was given land, all belongs to Christ. Israel was given the promises of God. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. David was given the kingdom of Israel. Christ as the firstborn son is the king of kings and Lord of lords and reigns over all kings and kingdoms. This is what the Bible is teaching, beloved. Christ is the firstborn and all creation belongs to him because he is Lord over all creation. Don't miss that. He is Lord over all creation. All creation. Beloved, nothing says God like creation does. That's why we sing, How Great Thou Art. Because we look at the stars and we hear the rolling thunder. And we say, Lord, how great you are because nothing speaks God like creation does. In fact, when you speak of God, and even contemplate the idea of God, the notion, the thought of God, one of the first things that comes to mind is that God is creator. That's what it means to be God. He creates all. He created all things. To be God is to be creator. And therefore, beloved, if the Bible is going to teach that Jesus is God, then the Bible must teach that Jesus is creator. For to be creator is to be God, and to be God is to be creator. And this is what our text teaches us this morning, that Jesus is the creator of all. Notice how the Bible relates Christ to creation. First, it says that he is the author of creation, doesn't it? Chapter 1 and verse 16. For by him all things were created. Doesn't get any plainer than that, beloved. I'm getting any straightforward and more straightforward than that. For by him all things were created. What do you mean, all things? All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, beloved. There is not just architecture in the universe, there is an architect. There is not just engineering in the universe, beloved. There is an engineer. There is not just a building, but there is a builder and a maker. It is only in the foolish thoughts of atheistic worldviews, beloved, that you have architecture and no architect. That you have a building and no builder. This universe, beloved, is not just architecture. It screams that there is an architect. The world in which we live, beloved, is wonderfully designed, and Jesus Christ is the designer. He is, brother Anthony, the original designs. He is the grand designer. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, how does the Bible even begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you go to John chapter 1 and verse 1, and how does John introduce Jesus? He says, in the beginning, just like Genesis 1, beloved, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the author of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. But he's not only author of creation. Notice how the text relates Christ to creation. He is also the object of creation. He is the object of creation. All things were made through him. All things were made for him. Through him and for him. This, beloved, reminds us of the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation is to display the glory and the beauty, the majesty of Christ. It's the glory and the beauty and majesty of God, the psalmist says in Psalm 19 and verse 1, does it not? The heavens declare the glory of God. That's what the Bible says the sky above proclaims his handiwork screams God his glory and his majesty and here in our text it says that that God is Jesus for all things were made through him and for him for his majesty displaying his beauty shouting his glory All things, all things. Notice how many times Paul uses, and the Spirit leads him to use this absolute word. All things, everything. Not just some things, all things. They tell us that there is an exception to every rule. That's the kind of rubric that we live our lives to. Whenever we see a rule, we always look for the exception. We're hard-headed and lawbreakers. There's always an exception to every rule. But beloved, at least here, the Bible isn't operating under that assumption. When it says all things, it means all things. And there is no exception, good, bad, indifferent, visible, invisible, you, me, the angels, all of the mountains, all the way down to the littlest of the molecules. All things and everything created through him and for him. No exception. No breaking of that rule. He is the word spoken in creation. He is the word that calls forth those things that are not as though they were. And speaks them into existence for his own glory, majesty, to the display of his beauty. And there are now no powers. No authorities in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether they are earthly or otherwise, but all now, because of who he is, are subject to him. All of them, beloved, all of them. Whatever power they have, they derive that power from him. They exercise their power ultimately for him. They derive their power from him and however we think of them or experience them, they exercise their power for him. Because he is the sustainer of creation. What the Bible says in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things. Notice how he just keeps saying all things. Don't want you and I to misunderstand this, beloved. Everything. Everything, visible and invisible. Height, low. Big, small, good, bad, all things. All things are held together by Him. In Him, all things hold together. All things. Jesus is the fount of divine providence. The Bible makes this plain over and over again. Who sustains? Who sustains you? beloved? I mean, really, think about it. Who keeps you going at whatever rate you are going? Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 tells us, In him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move. And have our being. Who sustains you, Jesus? Who cares for you? Who cares for you? First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, the Bible says, casting all your anxieties on him, Jesus, because what? He cares for you. Who sustains you? Jesus. Who cares for you? Jesus. Who gives you life and breath? Job chapter 12 and verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Who cares for you? Who sustains you? Who gives you life and breath? He who's got the whole world in his hands. And he's got the whole world in his hands, beloved. And if the universe is a finely tuned clock, clock, beloved, then Christ is not only the clock maker, but he is that power that keeps the tick in the tock. Every tick and every tock is according to his power and glory. Every blink of the eye, every whisper, every breath you take, every move you make, He is sustaining you by the grace and the mercy and the word of His power. Beloved, I don't want us to get it twisted and get it wrong this morning. But there is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. In fact, beloved, there is no such thing as a self-sustaining man or a self-sustaining woman. He creates all. He sustains all. Because he is the head of the new creation. See how our text is relating Christ to creation. He is the author of creation. He's the object of creation. He's the one who sustains creation. He is the head of the new creation. In verse 18, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Beloved, He not only created all things, but the Bible teaches us here and other places that. He is making all things new through his death and resurrection. And guess what? He reigns over that too. He not only reigned over the old creation, but so you don't miss it, he reigns over the new creation. The new creation. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 19, God says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. I am doing a new thing. Don't stop singing, Philip. (laughs) I am doing a new thing. You know what that new thing is, beloved? That new thing is the church made of Jew and Gentile as one, and Christ is the head of of it. He is the head of the church, the Bible says. He rules over her. She is his body. She is his bride. She is his sheep. She is his people. And therefore the Bible reminds us that he adds to the church as he sees fit. And beloved, he takes away from the church as he sees fit. He acts to her and he prunes her. And he washes her because he has a goal for her and eventually she will be spotless and pure, and having no such thing without wrinkle because she is her, I mean, because she is his beloved. He is her head. And he has the right to be because the new creation is brought about, beloved, through his death and resurrection. And all those raised in Christ shall be raised new. Christ the first fruits, Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but all of us after him. And because we are part of that new creation, then he is our head. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And he is our God. He is the head of the new creation, beloved. He is the sustainer of creation. He is the object of creation. He is the author of creation. And lastly in our text, he is the reconciler of creation. Which is 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is the point that the apostle has been making over and over again. In Christ was the fullness of God. Everything that God is, there it was in Christ, pleased by the Father to dwell there. And through him, therefore, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Beloved, sin brought cosmic rebellion. Sin put us at enmity with God. Sin separated the creation from God, and brought rebellion, and brought division, and brought discord. The coming of Christ into the world, beloved, is so that that wall of division between God and us could be torn down. The coming of Christ into the world, beloved, is so that enmity between God and all of creation could be once and for all destroyed, so that God is, Christ is tearing down the walls of division, and he, through the cross, brought an end to that cosmic rebellion. So that Christ is not only holding all things together, but He is bringing all things together. He is bringing all things together, beloved. And this is important when you understand the history of the scriptures, because the history of the scriptures is a history of division. But this is the history of mankind. It is Adam versus Eve. It is Cain versus Abel. It is God versus the world. It is Isaac versus versus Ishmael. It is Jacob versus Esau. It is David versus Saul. It is Jew versus Samaritan versus Gentile. It is men versus women. It is black versus white. It is Arab versus Drew Jew. love this world into which you and I were born and in which we now live. This is the reality of our existence. division, animosity discord, your flesh, and the world says to you every day in some form or fashion that you should have animosity towards certain people, that you should have animosity, that there should be discord between those who are not like you. And it is easy to do, beloved. It is easy to do. It is easy to allow those sentiments of discord to well up in you. It is easy to play upon your baser elements of animosity toward those who don't look like you and think like you and act like you. That is easy to do. What is not so easy is to read this text and stand up for Jesus. And to realize what is not so easy is to say to the world that in Christ, that wall of petition is being torn down because he has reconciled all of us to God and therefore has reconciled us to one another. And therefore, to tell the world, whatever else you think, the only thing that ultimately matters is Christ. It's Christ. Christ is God. And all deity dwelt in him. And thus only he could reconcile what seemed irreconcilable. That's you and God. And brought peace. Beloved. I don't know what else you've heard before, and maybe you've heard it, but I'm here to tell you that you can't declare peace with God. That's God's doing. If you ever gonna have peace with God, it's not because you decided to. It's because God decided that the war was over. And that's what he did. In Christ Jesus and the cross, he declared, your warfare has ended. And now, because of Jesus, you can have peace with God. But even more than that, beloved, now he calls on us to have peace with one another. Not only reconciled us to God, But he has reconciled us to each other. And this is the message that he has given to us. Has he not the ministry of reconciliation? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we have been reconciled to God and now we have this ministry. What is this ministry? This ministry of reconciliation. And that's why we say to the world, whatever else you say, ultimately Christ matters. Christ matters. Beloved, it's easy to say. It's easy to say, and we say it. It's easy to say that black lives matter. That's not hard to say because it's true. It's easy to say that blue lives matter. It's not hard to say because it's true. When we experience it, our flesh wants to say that. We Naturally gravitate toward things like that. Say white lives matter. Brown lives matter. Was not so easy to say. That as the world is saying that, and it turns to you, and you say, yes, black lives matter, but they only matter because Christ matters. And because Christ matters, black lives and white lives and brown lives and blue lives matter and can be reconciled to one another. Look around you this morning, beloved. The grand reconciliation that the world is after is what what Christ has wrought on the cross. And we are to display in our lives. Every day. Christ's beloved brings black and blue, white and brown together. And so the Christian can say, yes, black lives matter, but I'm not finished. <laughs> Don't go nowhere. Because the only way now that life will matter for all eternity, as if they know that Christ matters. Today, well as tomorrow. Jesus, Jesus, beloved, asks another important question. Here it is in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36. What does it profit to gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's the question that the Christian needs to have at the forefront of his or her mind as we are engaging the world that seems to think all these other things matter. Say to them, that's true, but what would it profit you if you end mass incarceration and you still go to hell? What would it profit you, beloved, if you lower... The unemployment rate, and you in the end are lowered into the gates of hell. What will it profit you, beloved? If you and I rescue every hungry, starving, unclothed, if we bring an end to police brutality, and the injustice of this world, what would it profit if you gain all that and you lose your soul? This is why, beloved, these things matter only because Christ matters. These things matter because Christ died. Christ has been risen, and these things matter only because Christ is coming again. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Redeemer. Jesus is Creator. Jesus is Lord of all because Jesus is God. And beloved, when you die, that is all that will matter.